guys can grab a seat. Everybody doing well? Yeah? Everybody doing well? Yeah? Yeah? Good. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to land. As you're flipping there, just a couple quick things to get our minds, um, well, a couple announcements, then we'll get to our minds, go into the text. But uh, first, I just want to say um, to go ahead and prepare your minds, prepare your hearts uh, through prayer, through maybe fasting, because um, in a couple short weeks, our college students are coming back. Um, now, if you haven't been, I mean, COVID has just been really strange in this regard. Uh, if you haven't been around for when college students come back, it's beautiful, it's chaotic, it's messy, and it's fun. Um, so we will move back to the gym in a couple weeks, um, and then college students will roll in, and they'll just do what college students do, just take over things and make big messes. So um, any college students in here? You do what you do, right? I mean, I, am I lying? Not, not you. You're different. Everyone else, right? So I'm just kidding. Um, so pray. Uh, I want to just throw this challenge out there. Uh, if you've been coming around for a while, consider just opening up your home. So the first one or two that you meet, just say, hey, can, you want to come over to our house for dinner? Um, that's especially in our world today, that kind of hospitality is just so foreign. So uh, we'll have family groups and you'll hear more about that. But um, just pray considering open up your home and then open up your heart. Uh, they are, they, they need us. They need a healthy local church. Uh, men, they need men. Godly women, they need you. Uh, one of the things that just, I, I didn't really expect coming to plant in a college town over the last seven years um, is, is my experience growing up with a healthy mom, a healthy dad, a healthy God-fearing home is almost nobody's experience coming to college. Uh, there's so much brokenness walking around on that campus. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. So uh, pray just about opening up your lives, opening up your homes to these college students as they move up here. Um, so yeah, just consider that. Now, Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to land because we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so this is now week 7 as we've been preaching through. Uh, and we've said this, the same couple things over and over and over again uh, about in regards to the Apostles' Creed. Now here, I just want to throw this out there too. Um, I'm starting my countdown right now because the last couple sermons I've gone really long. I met this wonderful lady named Carla and I told her that today was going to be a short sermon. This is her first time at the branch. I can't be a liar. So for Carla's sake, you're welcome. I'm going to try to make this short. We good? Everybody happy? If not... I'm going to do what I do. So uh, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed, and, and what we say over and over and over and over and over again, I just want you all to make sure that you hear this, uh, that, that we don't preach the creed because the creed is authoritative. That's not the point of what we're trying to accomplish, but rather we're teaching the creed so that we can get to the biblical truths that the creed represents. And the most cheesy but maybe helpful analogy through this has just been the moon, right? The moon only reflects the sun. It creates no energy. It creates no heat within itself, uh, but it reflects the sun. That's what we're trying to do with the creed. We're looking at the creed to go back and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? Um, because the creed and other catechisms and other liturgies are, are just short, they're memorable, and they can help us understand the totality of Scripture. And so we see over church history, there's two main reasons that the creed has been used. The first, to correct error. Right, so, so we'll see here in a minute that we're working through Christology because when the creed was written in the very early church area, uh, era, no one really knew what to do with Jesus Christ. So they focused a lot on who he was to correct error, uh, but primarily it's been used as a tool for spiritual formation. So how do we grow? How do we become disciples of Jesus? Well, the creed has helped us do this as we studied and memorized it. And so uh, last week we looked at a part of Christology that, that our hope and prayer was it would really build confidence in us, that, that Christ actually died, he actually defeated death, he was raised on the third day, and we looked at the implications of how massive, how far-reaching that is for us. Uh, today I want to use another C word that I hope will help us bring comfort. So last week was confidence, this week it's going to be comfort, that the creed is going to teach us as we see through Acts chapter 1, uh, a comforting doctrine of Jesus Christ. And here's why this matters, because automatically when you think of comfort, most of us think a negative view of comfort, right? Um, discomfort brings frustration. So I just want to throw that out there. Discomfort brings frustration. What do I mean by that? Well, when we think about comfort, what brings comfort to us, the easiest way to find that is to look at what brings discomfort, 
that will show us maybe an idol of comfort, but that will show us what really brings us comfort, right? So, so if you just want to get home, you want to get a nice uh, maybe glass of wine, watch TV, when your kids come in and ruin that and you're frustrated, that's because that's what you want for comfort. Or, or maybe you just want to have a quiet evening at home, just watch a movie, and then when your friends call and pester you, that's what brings you comfort is a nice evening at home. Or, or maybe comfort is for you is spending time with friends, that you want to go out, you want to enjoy a meal together, go hang out, go play something together. And when all your friends bail on you, that discomfort, that frustration shows that how you get comfort is being around friends, being around family. And we came out of COVID really realizing the comfort that was missing in our lives. So here's what some of the phrases might be. Well, this wasn't my plan. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Why would people do this? I can't catch a break. All these phrases come flooding to our mind when discomfort comes into our lives. And, and this is even more prevalent as we're trying to look at what actually biblically is supposed to bring us comfort. Because I just Googled a couple days ago quotes about life, right? Just a generic, what, what are some quotes about life? And here's the second one that popped up. I just thought this was what really proven my hypothesis. The second one that popped up was this. The purpose of our life is to be happy, right? So the purpose of your life is just to be happy, so if things don't bring you comfort, if things don't bring you happiness, man, cut them off. Your life is about you and you alone. The purpose of your life is happiness. Or, or maybe here's another one. I think this was the fourth one. Sometimes life doesn't give you what you want because you deserve more. You got it, girl. Go get it. I don't know why. That's just, I could just hear that over, yeah, I, I don't know. A girl telling another girl is what I hear when I read that. Maybe that's... Uh, sexist, I'll repent on that later, but sometimes I just, yeah, you, you deserve more. You got it. But, but do we? I mean, it, does more of the same thing actually make us happy? I mean, we just have to stop and really think about this phrase in comfort, that more of what we already possess is going to make us more comfortable, but it doesn't. More of the same thing does not bring any more comfort to our souls or to our hearts or even just music. I mean, you think about this. Uh, y'all remember when Old Town Road came out and every eight-year-old was singing Old Town Road? All right, so the song just came out. We're bopping to it in our house because we have Alexas in the room because we like government surveillance in our house, evidently. And so we're listening to this song, and my kids are singing it, and I just vividly remember one of the kids turns the corner, can't nobody tell me nothing. I'm like, I can Like, what? Like, so no more of this in our house, because I can tell you everything, little kid. Like, let's talk about this. But that's just what's ingrained in us. If it doesn't bring you happy, don't, don't listen to all these haters. Don't listen to all these people. What makes you comfortable is good and right. But we can statistically look at, we have all the luxuries, all the privileges that, we, that history's ever had, and are we actually comfortable, and are we actually happy? How, how is this working for us? And so we're going to see this morning as we study the person and work of Christ that there is a way to have God-centered, healthy comfort. There is a way for us to this morning just exhale and press into the comfort that only comes through Christ and Christ alone. But it, it, but it looks way different than what the world's going to tell us. It looks way different than you deserve more. Just pursue happiness. Whatever brings you joy do it. This is the lie that we're being fed, and that's not the truth of the gospel. So uh, I'm going to step off the stage for a second. We're going to read the creed together as we have every single week, uh, and then we're going to highlight one line that we're going to talk about this morning, and it's simply this. He ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's, that's the line that we're focusing on. He ascended, Jesus ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So let's read all this together, kind of catch that when we read it, uh, and then we will dive into Acts chapter 1. We ready? We ready? I believe...
encourage you to go back and listen to it. We dealt with he descended to hell and what that really means. Um, we should probably put an asterisk next to it. Hades, the place of the dead, that's where he went. Uh, just to be clear, we're not Catholic. Catholic is universal. So there's some things in here that we need to work through. But, but today, as we work through, he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We saw over the last couple weeks that, that this is really a mini-series within the Apostles' Creed. So we're on week five of week six of this mini-series on Christology. And Al Mohler puts it this way, uh, that really the largest portion of the Creed is devoted to Christ. As a matter of fact, we should see the Apostles' Creed as a confession of Christ with an introduction and a conclusion. And here's why this matters for us as we're studying the person and work of Christ. Uh, good theology leads to good doxology, right? So good theology leads to the right, proper worship and response to Jesus. And this is ultimately what we want. We want the creed uh, to inform us intellectually so that we know him fully, we know him truly, and we can worship him as uh, King Jesus. But lastly, we've talked about this the last couple weeks um, Jesus in the South can just be such a junk drawer. Does that make sense? I mean, when you say the word Jesus, it means many different things to many different people, and not many people around where we live and how we've been raised and how we've uh, grown up would argue with us that Jesus isn't a good guy, that he might not even be the Savior. But what does that really mean for us? What does that even look like for us? And, and so here's just two quick examples of really relevant things going on in today's world. Uh, so I'm going to read a tweet from a guy named Michael Gunger who wrote some songs that all of us are probably familiar with. You make beautiful things. You know that song? You make beautiful things out of us. Uh, so this is him, and he's kind of uh, fallen away from the faith, done some deconstruction, and he put up a tweet that's just caught a uh, firestorm this weekend. And, and this is why. Here, here's what he wrote. Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universal scene, universe scene itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. Are you starting to understand a little bit of the junk drawer of what Jesus is? That, that we are the Christ, Muhammad was Christ, Buddha was Christ. So we, we can't assume the knowledge of Christ. Or, or maybe even another one, uh, and, and we talked about this a couple, I don't know, a year or so ago. I brought the book. I read it out of his book so that you see I'm not making this up or I'm not trying to caricature anybody using their own words. But, but Bethel, which is this massive worship band movement that happens throughout our time, uh, the guy that leads Bethel, Bill Johnson, uh, clearly states in his book that Jesus was not God, that he was a man in right standing with God, and therefore that's how we can do everything that Jesus did. So Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just a man, but he was a sinless man. He was in right standing with God. That's how he can do what he does. And this is a common heresy called kenosis heresy that, that has been a heresy really for thousands of years. But this is still being prevalent and brought up. So, so you might ask us, why don't we sing Bethel? That's why. Because the words that they're singing are worshiping a man, not Jesus as God. So this idea of junk drawer of who Jesus is and what Jesus really accomplished is very prevalent. And so that's why I'm grateful for the Apostles' Creed. I'm grateful for the teaching of church history that has really helped us identify who Jesus is. And so for us this morning, as we look at Acts 1, 1 through 11, we get to celebrate almost a coronation day in a sense. Uh, now, if you're like me, the first time you heard coronation day was in Frozen, uh, but coronation is when anybody else? I didn't, I didn't know that until it's Coronation Day, right? I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I was going to start singing it. You don't want me to sing it. Uh, so we're going to see this Coronation Day of when Jesus, who's always been king, but really uh, within earthly standards, gets crowned as king and the implications of that for us. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Um, I thought about, can I just be true confession? I thought about trying to work in frozen quotes through the whole sermon to see who called it. I'm not going to do that, but I didn't know they did that anymore. Acts 1, there we go. My wife got that one. Who knew we had a thousand salad plates? Acts 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, Otheopolis, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. 
after he was given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 3 is going to be a massive context for us. That in his 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up looking into heaven? I, I, sorry, just love that question. Like, if I was a, a disciple in that time, it would be a hard time not to be a smart aleck to these angels. Like, right? What do you mean, why am I standing here? They just ascent, Jesus just left. That's why I'm standing here. But uh, Acts 1.8, all of this works together. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, so let us pray over God's word this morning as we dive into this text. Father, thank you for this time that we can spend together, that we can open up this word together and we can see you rightly, how you lived the perfect sinless life, how you died the death that we deserved, but how death couldn't hold you, how you defeated death. And now as we read, as we study your ascension into heaven, as the full coronation has taken place, you are, in fact, King Jesus. Father, thank you for this time. Would you illuminate our hearts to the truth of your scripture? It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, way back in the fall of 2016, uh, we started teaching through the book of Luke. Um, was anyone here fall of 2016 when that started? Raise your hands high. Six of you. All right. So we, and we went through Luke for three years. So from fall of 2016 to uh, somewhere in 2019, I believe we finished up. Uh, yeah, May of 2019 that year. And so, so as we're going through Luke, we became very accustomed to the way that Luke writes and the purpose of his writing. So Luke 1, 1 through 4 talks about that, that Luke is writing this uh, to Theopolis back into 2016 when I was a lot cooler. We'd call him Theo, right? So he wrote to Theopolis for um, his faith to give him certainty concerning the things that he was taught. And so a lot of scholars would say that this is actually one writing, that the book of Luke-Acts should actually be together, right? So this is just one coherent thought to Theopolis, um, making sure that he understood fully the person and work of Christ and how the early church got started, how the Spirit came, how all of this took place, so that he would be a certain concerning the things that he was taught and so for us this morning, it's the same way. That, that is the beauty of Scripture, that we can be certain on the things that were taught to us, the things that were given to us. And, and so I just want to draw attention to three real quick things that we'll see out of this text and, and then kind of wrestle through some of the implications together. Uh, the, the first that we have to see in having certainty in this is that he really ascended. Right, So that Jesus was really, he came back from the dead, he walked around on this planet earth for 40 days, revealed himself to many people, and he actually ascended into heaven. Like he, he went from ground to heaven, and scripture says, and, and he's going to come back that same way. And here's why this matters. Everything we say moving forward in the idea of kingship of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does, in the same way if the resurrection was not true, um, then, then nothing else matters. Then 1 Corinthians 15 would say we should be pitied among the most. In the same way, if the ascension didn't matter, if it didn't happen, then we should be pitied most too. Then the faith that we have is Futile. And so last week we looked at a couple of the theories that were going on about Christ, uh, Christ resurrecting from the dead. Uh, maybe they were all hallucinating, right? That maybe the, the trauma was so real for Mary and all the disciples that they were just hallucinating. Sounds crazy. Or maybe this one was 
just the most ridiculous one, so I like it. Uh, Jesus had a twin brother that no one knew about, and so the twin brother went up and did everything for him and like had this whole ruse, and just how ridiculous is this? The most leading one is the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die, that his heart rate was so low that they couldn't find the pulse. They put him into the tomb, and then he just woke up by himself, uh, moved to three to 400-pound rock, even though he had just been beaten for an entire day, uh, even though he they were stabbed in the heart and blood and water hit the ground. None of that killed him, right? So he was just able to like, oh, I'm, three days later, I'm good. I'm going to move the stone and, what's up, guys? Let's go get some fish, right? Like, that's just what they believe. And the reality is none of that's true. The Occam's razor, the most obvious answer is the correct one, that Jesus actually defeated death. And in the same way, the most obvious answer is the correct one here. The ascension actually took place. Because if it didn't, we looked at this last week, why, why would all the martyrs be tortured and 11 out of the 12 be murdered for their faith? Why would all the disciples become martyrs for something they knew wasn't true? Do you really think that these disciples that we had read about for three years and just some of the ridiculous things that they did, they were able to hide and conceal Jesus for the next 50 years? I mean, the stretch that you have to have to make this true that the ascension actually didn't take place is just honestly ridiculous. There's no way intellectually you can get there. So, so first we've got to see that the ascension actually happened, that Jesus actually defeated death, and he actually went from heaven or from earth to heaven. He ascended up to sit at the right hand of the Father. That is just truth. Second, we have to see what was Jesus telling the disciples after his resurrection. So when you stop to think about it, I mean, just put yourself, not that you'll ever be Jesus, spoiler alert, but put yourself in those shoes. You were dead. You're not dead anymore. You've got 40 days to hang out with your boys. What are you going to say? Or, or your girls, right? What, what are you going to say? Maybe you deserve more, right? Is that what you're going to say in these 40 days as you're hanging out, as you're spending time with them? In, in Luke, I think in very uh, important detail, he put into Acts 1 verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. So for the 40 days that Jesus was with them, he was teaching them continually about the kingdom of God. Now, now we see if you've read spent any times in the gospel, this is a common reoccurring theme over and over and over again. Over a hundred times, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was explicitly mentioned in the teachings of Jesus. He was uh, almost obsessed about speaking, teaching, highlighting the kingdom of God and the implications of that. And this is what R.C. Sproul would say to help us understand what he meant by the kingdom. The easy answer would be to note that a kingdom is a territory over which a king reigns. Since we understand that God is the creator of all things, the extent of his realm must be the whole world. Manifestly, then, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. And since he reigns everywhere, the kingdom of God is everywhere. So as Jesus is teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he's saying everything here belongs to God. Right? And in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So now I'm going to be ascended, I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. This is now my kingdom. Everything you see, as far as the east is from the west, the universe, all the way to the depths, this is the kingdom of God. And he was constantly teaching his disciples, teaching his followers the importance of this idea of kingdom. Which brings us to the, the pressing question in the minds and the hearts of the disciples. Look with me at Acts 1-6. So when, the, when they had come together, they, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus taught his entire ministry centered around the kingdom of God. Now he's been with them for 40 days, teaching them of the kingdom of God. Right before the ascension, the, the disciples pull him aside and say, listen, listen, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, first thing we need to see as we start diving into this massively important question is just the patience 
the patience that we see in Jesus' response to his disciples. So for three years, he had taught them of what the kingdom of God and what it represents. For 40 days, he had just taught them about the kingdom of God and what it represents and what it means now that he's been dead, buried, and raised from the dead. Before he goes to heaven, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. So here's their pressing question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, maybe this doesn't make sense yet, and hopefully we'll see it. But when I read this, the first thing that came to my mind was my kids asking for a snack the moment after dinner, right? Where you just want to run your head through the wall. You literally, I just cooked this. I fed this to you. We had a great meal together. Your butt has not left the seat, and you're already asking for a snack. Are you kidding me? Now, if you don't have kids, it's coming, I just want to warn you because I remember watching a YouTube video where this mom was going off about snacks, snacks, snacks. Why do kids like snacks? I'm like, lady, calm down. Take some like antidepressants. You're, you're fine. But I feel her pain now, right? We just had this incredible meal prepared for you and you want goldfish. But, but this is what's happening. The disciples t- entirely missed the entire message, the goodness of the kingdom of God and they say, no, no, we don't want you to rule and reign over everything. Like just, just do Israel. Just this small part. We don't want this incredible meal. We just want Israel. Now, what does this mean? What does this look like? Because there's a lot of eschatology and, and a lot going in here. But, but here's what I want us to understand. So if you have your Bibles, flip back with me real quick to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, because we'll start to see the confusion and, and why the disciples asked this question. And we need to understand, one, the theology behind it, but two, to make sure that we don't fall into the same trap that the disciples did. So we see this in Luke 19. We're going to read 36 through 38. As Jesus, this is the triumphal entry, as most of your Bibles will call it. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as he rode Along, pick it up, verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on his way down from the mountain olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here's what's going down, right? And we kind of even see this. I mentioned it last week. Uh, Peter, when Jesus is getting arrested, uh, pulls out the knife, cuts the guard's ear off. Uh, The entire time, the disciples were walking in this assumption that when the Messiah comes, that the power that's going on, the rulers, the leaders that are going on to primarily Rome and this Greco-Roman culture, all of that is going down. King Jesus is going to roll on in his white horse and, and defeat all the government, defeat everyone else, and King Jesus is going to rule and reign right there on earth. Right? So forget about Pontius Pilate, forget about Herod, forget about all the Caesars. It's going to be King Jesus, his earthly rule and reign right here on the moment. So they're anticipating this, they're wanting this. Now these are Jesus' boys, right? So they're like, man, like we're gonna have we're gonna have a say in this. Like we're gonna be some big deals in the kingdom of Jesus right here on earth. But for three years they hadn't seen it. They hadn't really they've seen Jesus do a lot of things so that they know he's probably actually is the Messiah. But as far as a power move for Jesus to come in and take over and become king there, get everyone out of Israel, get everyone out of Jerusalem and take things back over. They hadn't seen it, but there's this snapshot, right, that triumphal entry, even though Jesus had literally told them time and time and time again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to give my life up as a ransom for many. This is the purpose, but the boys are getting hyped. They're going, oh, no, it's about to go down. We're here. Jesus is here. Everyone's here. Now's the time. Jesus is about to rule and reign right here on this, on this earth. And, and how do we know this? Flip over to Luke 22. I mean, this is just, when you, when you put the entire picture at play, one, it baffles my mind, but two, gives me great encouragement that I'm an idiot, and so are the disciples, right? So if God can use them, surely he can use me. Luke 22. Now, just context. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. But if your eyes just glance a little above verse 24, that's the institution of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus had literally just told them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that spilled out for you. This is why I'm here in Jerusalem to die. 
that this is the purpose of all of this. Do this in remembrance of me, what I'm going to do for you. And what is the response to this? I mean, they're, they're still caught up in the old paradigm. Look at me, Luke twenty two twenty four. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled out for you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Who's going to be number one? And you know, I mean, we talked about it last week. Uh, John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. John, in his recording of going to the tomb, made a point to show that he outran Peter to get there. So you know John's going, boys, it's me. And you know Judas is sitting over there going, it ain't me. Right? Like, like we know this is what's happening here. I mean, just ludicrosity. But they were in this framework that Jesus is going to establish his rule and reign, his kingdom here now. This is what's going on. So Jesus dies Maybe it's not happening. Jesus is raised from the dead. Maybe this is happening. Jesus is about to ascend, and they go, hold on, but before you go, like, is this it? Like, is now the time? Is now the time for us to be rulers and reign with you in, in your kingdom? Are you about to do it now? And Jesus goes, guys, n- no. This kingdom that I've been preaching on for the last three years is not an earthly kingdom. It's way bigger than that. You've got to zoom out and see it. So as we look at this text this morning, and as we start to talk about Jesus ascending, sitting at the right hand of the Father in this coronation day, that now Jesus is fully king. He always has, but it's now officially Jesus is king. I want to look at some of the implications for us. And I also want to zoom in just a little bit to help us maybe understand some of the misunderstanding that the disciples had and really, we can go back to church history because I think uh, John Calvin really established a framework for us to help see uh, some of the, the work at what Jesus was doing. Um, some, some would say, was it actually Calvin, that Calvin just kind of made it famous? Um, regardless, he established this threefold office of Jesus. And he would say that Jesus was prophet, Jesus was priest, and Jesus was king. And if you have any background with confessions, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this exact language, that Jesus was prophet, Jesus was priest, and Jesus was king. And so what they're doing is saying, like, in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of types. Uh, this would be an idea of typology, right? So there's a bunch of types of Jesus, the foreshadowing of what's to come within the Old Testament. So, so first we can see prophet, right? Like, what does a prophet do? It's a mouthpiece that speaks on behalf of God. So we see Moses receives the law, gives it to the people in exile as a mouthpiece. He speaks on behalf of God. And we see that Jesus is the better Moses. We see all the prophets speaking on behalf of God. This is what God says. You need to repent. You need to turn. Uh, we see Amos uh, that really really pushes in. If you haven't read through Amos, uh, with now all that's going on with social justice, Amos would be a massive thing for us to read and study. Uh, it's kind of in the back of my mind for maybe what we'll preach next spring. Uh, but, but Amos speaks on behalf of God. This is what we understand as a prophet. And then you've got priests. So if you've been with us, we're preaching through the book of Hebrews, and, and one of the massive points that we see is that Jesus is the better high priest. He's after the order of Melchizedek. So all the work of the priests that we see throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus becomes the better priest by becoming the perfect sacrifice. So all the animals, all the sacrifices that we see take place are all a type. They're all a foreshadowing to what Jesus would ultimately accomplish as the perfect high priest for us, connecting us back with God forever and always. But what about the kingdom work of God? What about Jesus as king? So prophet, it's pretty easy to see. He goes around for three years teaching the good news of the kingdom. He's speaking on behalf of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what the Father says. This is what the Father thinks. Prophet, sure, we get it. Priest makes a ton of sense that he became the perfect sacrifice for us. He did what no earthly priest could ever do, uh, which is make atonement once and for all, forever. That it is a perfect sacrifice when Christ died on the cross, it's finished. There's no more sacrificial system to take place. So we can see the idea of priest coming out. But Jesus as king, Jesus as king, 
So we understand if you have any background in church, King David, King Solomon, all these King Saul, all these famous kings that are supposed to be types that are supposed to push us to the king kingdom of Jesus. And we see this maybe uh, the easiest way to see it is in 2 Samuel 7. I'll just read it for us. 2 Samuel 7, pick it up, verse 12. Nathan tells David of God's promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so this is where, rightfully so, the disciples are going, but, but you're from the lineage of David. Like, you're supposed to be a king like David. And all we've seen is you just kind of get pushed to the side. You have this massive following, but, but you don't, haven't really, like, gone after Caesar. You, actually, you told us, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Aren't you going to defeat Caesar? I mean, like you could see this confusion as you start to understand the grand narrative of Scripture that he's from the lineage of David. He's going to be a better king than David, just like he was a better priest like Melchizedek, just like he was a better prophet than Moses. But, but they don't see it taking place until he defeated death, until the ascension, until he sits at the right hand of God the Father forever, ruling and reigning as kingdom or as the king now forever. So, no, I'm not going to restore the kingdom of Israel like you guys want. My plan is way bigger. My plan is way better. I'm the king over everything. Now, for me, I, I want us to read a couple passages, and we're going to flip back and forth, and uh, I'm getting close to 35 minutes, so Carla, please forgive me. But I heard, a, I heard a doctrine this week that I really hadn't heard before. Uh, and it was just a random podcast. It wasn't a, a massive deal. It wasn't any, like, big studies. But it was the doctrine of clarity or perspicuity. That's the a fancy word. And here's what the guy that was talking about, Aaron Minikoff, was trying to just talk about the clarity of Scripture. That for me, communicating the words of God, God doesn't need me to do this. That we can just read. That we can just read and understand this truth of Scripture. That the Scriptures that God has given us is clear within itself. So, so even just taking a trip down memory road, uh, I vividly remember we were in this room, but it was only half the room because we hadn't grown. And um, we started the book of Galatians. And for one night, we just read from Galatians the entire book together. There was no preaching. There was no expounding on Scriptures. We just read the book of Galatians. And by far, is one of my favorite times we've ever had at the branch. So, so here's what I want to do. There's a temptation in me to try to convince you that Jesus is ruling and reigning as king. But really, I just want to read some passages and let the Bible speak for itself. You all right with that? So I want you to follow along with me. We're going to be flipping because I want you to see this isn't a New Testament idea. This isn't an Old Testament idea. This is a grand narrative of Scripture idea. So first, and, and I'll try to slow down. Um, but I, I want us to start at the end. Is that all right? So Revelation 19. Revelation 19. I just want to read these passages, and then after this, we'll talk a little bit of application, and then we'll be finished. Revelation 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Revelation 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horses. From the mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is the description of King Jesus. Let's flip with me to Psalm 110. So now Old Testament, this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And you don't have to keep flipping. There's about five passages. So maybe just jot them down so you can study them later. Psalm 110. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Just flip over a couple books to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Ephesians 1, 20-23, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And lastly, 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained from free and free from above reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever can see. To him be the honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see the kingdom of God has no boundaries, has no ending. There's no king that can stand against him. There's no earthly power that can rule over him. All of his enemies will become footstools. He is king of kings, lord of lords, tatted down his thighs. He's got a white robe. You cannot touch him. So when we think about worship, when we think about God in prayer, who are we worshiping or who are we praying to? Are we praying to the king of kings and lord of lords? Are we thinking that mindset when we get there? Because here's what we see. The ascension and sitting of Jesus at the right hand of God proves that he is king. Now, can I just be honest as we start to wrap up this time together? I don't think, just knowing the room, knowing where we are, I do not think that I have to prove to you that Jesus is king. I don't think that I have to have lofty words or lofty language. Scripture can do that. The time and place that we live understands that. I don't have to convince you that Jesus is king. In the same way that I don't have to convince many people that Jesus is our Savior, that he went to the cross to die for our sins. In the same way I don't have to convince many people that he's prophet or many people that he's priest. But here's the rub. Jesus is Lord and King. That's where the rub begins. We love Jesus as Savior, but do we love him as our Lord? We love what Jesus offers us in forgiveness, but do we really want to submit and bow down to everything he commands? This is the massive disconnect than the generation that we live in. This is where comfort comes in. Yes, I want the comfort of knowing that I've been forgiven, but I don't really want to do what he tells me to do because that doesn't sound very fun. I don't really want to give my life like the rest of the disciples did. So Jesus is going to be my Savior. Is he going to be my Lord? Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, no, I love Jesus. Thanks for forgiving me, Jesus. But am I going to actually submit to what you want me to do in my life and my career and my family and my kids? I like Jesus as Savior. This as pastorally is the conversation I feel like I have over and over and over again. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is not my Lord. Jesus is the prophet and priest. Jesus is not the king. 
And, and I think part of it, just us growing up as in a democracy, which praise God for, we don't even really have this framework. If we, if we don't like what things are doing, we just go to the ballot box and fix it, unless it's fixed for us. Just kidding, just kidding, not political. Right? But we have say, we can speak into, we can, we can go, we can change the things. If we don't like it, we can change it, we can fix it, we can speak into it, because we've never been raised, uh, I want to assume most of us, I don't know, everyone here, has not been raised in this kind of monarchy environment where you do not have the right to speak on behalf of the king. So here's what Jesus says. He, again, he talks about this a lot. This will be the last time I make you flip. Probably not, but we'll see. Matthew 13. I want us to see this, and I encourage you to read the entire chapter of Matthew 13. Because I want to see red letter, what does Jesus say about the kingdom? What does it mean that Jesus is king? Matthew 13, we're going to read just 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasures hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his, circle that, underline that, get a tattoo of that, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it with joy. So when these guys, these parables, finds out what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus as king, ruler, understanding the, the severity of this, don't begrudgingly come to King Jesus. Right? They don't begrudgingly bow down to who he is and, man, my way's better, but, like, man, this is what my parents want me to do. I'll go get baptized and Jesus is king. Sure, is that, like, good? I'll see you at Easter. I'll see you at Christmas. Just don't email me. This is not this parable that with joy, when they truly understand who the king of the world is, who king Jesus is and what the kingdom represents, with joy they got rid of everything. With joy, they walked into, here's that word again, the comfort of the kingdom. That we don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, expecting different results. If you want true comfort, if you want how biblical would say peace, if you want peace that surpasses all understanding, it is not found in the earthly kingdom that we can develop and come up with on our own. It's only found by walking freely into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the joy that we get to walk into. So listen, and I'm preaching to me too, we've got to stop looking for comfort in our own kingdoms. We've got to stop saying, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not actually my king because I know better because my question to you and to me is, how's that working for you? How is this kingdom of yours that's supposed to be better than the kingdom of Christ working for you? Are you satisfied? Are you content? Are you fulfilled? Do you have all that you could ever want, ask, or imagine? Do you own the cattle on a thousand hills? Do you understand and are orchestrating and have caused every single thing that will ever happen for eternity? Because my king does. My king knows. My king is there. He is omniscient. He, yesterday, today, tomorrow, he's there. He knows it all. He calls it all. He's working all of it together for our good. But sure, keep building your kingdom. Because you don't know what you're having for lunch. Right? I mean, do we stop and slow down and think the ludicrosity of this? I know what I'm going to have. I'm going to have a sandwich when I get home. I hope your bread is moldy. You're not having a sandwich. Jesus is molding it right now. But what king are we actually submitting to? And what joy is it actually bringing? Because the message that Jesus preached is not, I mean, just come suffer. It's come live. Come live. The devil's come to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give life to the full. The kingdom that I'm establishing is where true life is found. Come live. You're, you keep suffering by trying to put yourself on the throne and put yourself where you should not be. Come live. Get off the throne. Let me sit there, rule and reign and your life will be the better for it. Does that mean you're going to get everything you ever want? Absolutely not. 
The thing you're going to go through some of the hardest seasons in your life? Absolutely. But doesn't it bring more peace when you can trust the king of the universe than the king of your heart? You as king? So, so here's what we've done. Over the last couple of weeks, as we start to end, uh, we've looked at four main points of the creed. We've said, okay, how does the creed want us to grow in knowledge? How does the creed help us grow in a, as a family of God? How does the creed help us grow in our teaching and modeling of who Jesus is to the world? And how does it help us to endure? So let me answer these four questions briefly, and then uh, we'll enter into a time of communion. Here's how the, the creed has helped us to grow in our knowledge of the kingship of Jesus Christ. As we've seen, everything is pointing to this moment of the coronation of King Jesus. Every king in the Old Testament, every story of the Old Testament, every moment of the Old Testament, Jesus' life, his perfect sinless life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of it, all of history has been pointing to this one moment of the coronation of Jesus ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father as king. Every moment. So when we read the stories of the Old Testament, don't for a second think that we can be like some of these famous guys that we read. Don't for a second think that this story is about you. Jesus is the better everyone. We've seen this throughout Hebrews. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better. You fill in the blank, Saul, Solomon, Sam, all of these guys. Jesus is the better. Any good, right thing that we see in these characters, fast forward to Jesus is going to be better than that. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that. This is the knowledge that we must grow in. Family, how does this line, how does the ascension, the kingship of Jesus Christ help us to grow together in a family? Well, it's really quite simple. If I'm not the king, and if you're not the king, and if we all lay down our scepters and our thrones, we can really love and serve one another. That if my existence isn't for you to serve me, to make me happy, because I'm not the king, I'm just like you, I'm a peasant in this story then imagine the love one another, serve one another, outdo one another in showing honor, show hospitality to one another. All these commandments that we see in the New Testament of how the church should be, it's a whole lot easier when you take yourself off the throne and serve like everyone else. That when we see Christ rightly as king, and we're serving him as king, you're serving him as king, the church as a family is serving him as king, a lot of these little petty disagreements and fights and dramas and quarrels will just disappear because it's with joy that we're serving one another with honor. It's with joy that we're giving up all that we are for the kingdom of God. It's with joy that we pursue that. Church, here, here's just been for me. I'm, I'm a little cynical. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, whoever just scoffed is cynical too. I know. We're, we're, we're in this together. Can I just be honest, though? Who was the greatest? As I just want to make fun of these guys, railing these disciples. We're having this debate. But I'm afraid we have this in the church way too often. That we're still fighting this same fight. And even though, like, you can give them the benefit of the doubt, they were probably rightly confused. We're totally without excuse. Like we have the canonization of Scripture. We have the Spirit inside of us. We should never have this argument within ourselves, who is the greatest. Now, let me be fair. We don't ever do it with, with our vocal cords. We don't ever bow down and serve me because I'm the greatest. But our sin really shows that we think we are the greatest. That we naturally walk in this tone and tenor that we should be servants among all else. So when we rightly see that King Jesus is the king, I mean, we're, the bond of the church is going to be so much sweeter because we're just constantly serving one another. And I long to see that more and more until he comes to rescue us. Also, it's going to enhance what we do here. When, when we worship together, when we sing high the voice of King Jesus, it's going to change that. It's going to change the way that we pray. It's going to change what we ask. It's going to change uh, almost, and I don't mean this to be foreboding, but almost what we expect. I mean, if God is the king and he rules and reigns over everything, then 
then we should ask some pretty big things, right? We, we should dream some pretty big things. If, if God owns a cat on a thousand hills, if he, owns, if he rules and reigns over everything, then we shouldn't be afraid to ask for anything. If he doesn't give it to us, then that's part of his perfect plan. But didn't Jesus say we have not because we ask not? I mean, if we really see Jesus as king and ruler over everything, we should pray some pretty bold, audacious prayers. Lastly, or not lastly, third, we'll see the teach. What does this Apostles' Creed help us to teach? What does it help us to model? In in this passage, and also Matthew's uh, recommendation, or Matthew's recording of this, it's pretty clear what we're supposed to teach. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in light of this ascension, what are we supposed to teach the goodness of our king? Pretty simple. Acts 1-8, the passage which we read earlier. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and we'll talk about that in two weeks. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we're called to make disciples, we're called to tell people about our king. And this is just something, if I can just throw this out there real quick. If you've been a follower of Jesus for longer than three to five years, we've got to be making disciples. And I know, listen, listen, and, and I'll be, and we can talk more about this later. The, the biggest hiccup is, well, I've never been discipled. Like, how can I be a disciple when I've never been discipled? Well, at some point in your maturation, in my maturation, here's what has to happen. This wasn't done for me, but I'm going to do it for others. This has not been, I, I would wish I would have had this idea, but, but I'm going to do it for others. And, and let me just brag on someone real quick because she's fantastic. My wife, walking it, she never wanted to be a pastor's wife. She never dreamed in a million years that she would be a pastor's wife. That's not her aura. She doesn't have big spray hair, like pink hair, hairspray. She doesn't walk in just ruining and raining the church like most pastor's wives have. You know what I'm talking about? If you're Baptist, you know what I'm talking about. Like, that's not her. And for the first six years of our ministry, she was looking, hey, can I just find a pastor's wife to take time to pour into me, disciple me? What does it really look like to be a pastor's wife? And she just made this shift maybe a year ago. We go, I've never gotten it, but that doesn't mean that I can't spend time with other pastor's wives and work through this together, model them. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've noticed. Here's how I can help you. So I, I am sorry and even on behalf of the branch, some of you guys have been here for a long time and you don't feel like we've adequately discipled you guys. I am sorry. But at some point, that tide has to turn. If you know how to read your Bible and you know who King Jesus is, you can make disciples. We've got to stop sitting on this crutch of, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Pick at the book of the Bible. Come to family group. We, we model this for you every single week. Ask the same four questions every time you get with someone. Get a Bible. Ask these four questions, observations, who is God, who are Christians in this text, what does this mean for the world? Let's pray. Basic, just do it. We've been commanded to do this. And lastly, how does this creed, how does this message help us to endure? How does this help us to endure? How does this help us to hold fast to what we believe? First, take a massive breath because you are not in charge. So for some of us, that's going to be like, but I want to be in charge. But for some of us, that's the best news of all time, that King Jesus is ruling and reigning, and it's not up to you. It's not up to you. Do what God has commanded you to do, and then trust him as a good, faithful king, a good, faithful father to provide and take care of these details. It's not up to you. Relax, take a deep breath, breath. King Jesus has it. But for the 80 to 90 percent of the room, here's a question for you. If Christ really is king, what are you going to let go of this morning? If Christ really is ruling and reigning, what is that one area of life where, man, I, I submit to the Lordship of Christ, I bow down, I, he is King Jesus, I'm going to give everything to him except for this area. I don't quite trust him here. He's king, he can rule and reign, he can have everything except for this one thing. This is is mine. I I don't quite trust him there. 
What is it? Futures, desires, fears, worries, plans, control. What is it that is holding us back from fully worshiping him as King Jesus? What is it that we need to let go of this morning? So, so here's how I want us to end. We, we take communion because COVID is kind of ceasing. We've brought this back, which is just a sweet time for us. Uh, we, we take communion as baptized believers. So if you're not yet a baptized believer, baptized past your conversion, man, we're so grateful that you're here. But Scripture would say this is time for the baptized believers to, to take the body which represents, or take the bread which represents the body, take the juice that represents his blood, to remember all that he's done for us. But for us, as, as we take this this morning, here, here's the two things that I want you to wrestle with as you're taking communion. We've got a table back there and a table back there. How do you need to breathe easy and relax that Jesus is king? Or what are you going to repent of and confess and let go of this morning and give it to the king? Because if you're anything like me... There's, there's a few areas in my life that I've been trying to fix and fix and fix and fix and fix. And a different tactic and a different approach and a different this and a different that will fix this problem that I've not fixed in 34 years. What, what are you going to let go of and fully submit to the kingship of King Jesus? Because that is where true comfort is found. Not that you deserve more, not that happiness is the end goal, but true comfort is found and fully submitting to the kingship of Jesus Christ. So I, I want to pray. I want to apologize to Carla because that was an hour. And then we'll spend time in this moment. Now, I just hope for some of us this is a free moment of worship because we get just to let go to King Jesus and rejoice because he actually has it. He rules and reigns over everything. There's freedom and true comfort found in that. Let's pray. Father, as we pray to you this morning, let us remember the types that we see through the Old Testament that you are the prophet speaking on behalf of God the Father. That the only way that our prayers are even being heard is because you're the perfect priest. You're the perfect intercessor for us. And Father, right now, as we pray, we're praying to King Jesus, our Lord, who is seated. You're not worried about anything seated at the right hand of God the Father in perfect control and perfect power ruling and reigning over everything. You're not surprised. You're not an ambulance driver that shows up after something has happened. Father, you own everything. You rule everything. You reign over everything. You are the perfect King of kings, Lord of lords, forever and always. So as we pray to you this morning, Father, would we remember that? Would we know exactly who we're praying to? So Spirit, I'm asking right now that you would speak to us. Where are we living like we're the king, not King Jesus? Where are we trying to rule and reign over our little kingdom here? Where do we think that even though you own everything, rule and reign over everything, created everything, will one day come back and establish your kingdom here? Even though all that's true, where is it that we think that we know better? Is it within a dating relationship? Is it within our career? Is it within our future? Is it within a relationship? Is it within our family? Is it within fill in the blank? Father, would you right now in this moment speak to us? Where are we refusing to release control to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? 
Where are we looking for comfort where comfort cannot be found, all the while ignoring that free comfort is found in the kingdom of God? For some of us, we just need to stop fighting. Stop fighting to stay in control of our own little kingdom. This morning, give it over to you. Because you are the author of our faith. You are the perfecter. You're the only one that has done it perfect. So let us not look to wisdom of mere men, of our friends, of our family, but let us look to you and you alone. So church, here's the deal. I'm trusting the Spirit speaking to you right now. I'm trusting that as we've been preaching, as we've been reading the text together, that God has clearly spoken to you like he has to me this week on areas where we just need to release all authority to you, to King Jesus, and the true comfort that is only found there. So as we transition from this time to a time of communion, how are you going to repent from that? Whatever the Spirit is laying on your hearts, how are you going to confess? How are you going to give that control over? How are you going to give that anxiety over? How are you going to give that worry over, that fear over, the doubt over, whatever it is? How are you going to give it over to the King? Let us remember the gospel, his body broken for us, his blood spilled out for us. This is our king that offers forgiveness. This morning, let us repent. Let us ask for forgiveness. Let us give it over. Let us grow in accountability. Let us confess this to our friends and to our family, to our family groups. Let us walk in the true peace and freedom that comes in being part of the kingdom of God. Let us with joy, with joy get rid of everything. With joy sell everything. Go buy the land where the kingdom is found. With joy, because this is the best thing for us. So I'm going to leave us here. I'm not going to say amen. If you need to continue to pray, consider, think. This is a space for that. When you're ready, when you personally say amen, There are two tables in the back of communion. You can uh, grab it. You can take it as a family. You can spend some time praying together. The elders will be present if you need some time just to pray or someone to run something through. And and then we can worship because the king is on his throne forever and always. So whenever you're ready, communion will be open.